1975, a group of 20 indigenous activists from the American Indian Movement and the Coalition for Navajo Liberation took over the Fairchild Semiconductor Plant in Shiprock, Navajo Nation. As Dr. Lisa Nakamura describes, Fairchild chose to insource from the Navajo Nation due to cheap labor, tax benefits, and federal monies. After eight days and failed negotiation, Fairchild announced that it would close and leave the Navajo Nation. This has had a long-lasting impact on the Navajo community. In this episode, I talked to a Shiprock community member. He is also part of the band known as Exit. His name is Chiliazi. Chiliazi discusses the events leading up to the takeover, why it occurred, and the impact of the takeover from the perspective of a community member. The incident provides insight into how Navajo workers played a role in the digital industry as chip manufacturers, as well as activists who confronted the exploitation, and how the community reacted to the incident. Chiliazi details the sentiment of the community and provides some lessons to consider when organizing within indigenous communities. The opening song is titled Reservation of Education, and the closing song is titled At Peace. Both songs are by the band Exit. I will also include a link to Dr. Lisa Nakamura's article about the racialization of Navajo women who worked at the factory. I'd suggest checking it out. Thank you to Chiliazi. Thank you for listening. This is the Wish Day Podcast. Happy New Year. My participation with uh, uh, Native rights and and our advocacy was very much enhanced by my belonging to the Exit Music Group. We participated in uh, numbers of um, AIM-sponsored activities across the country, and we were regarded as the uh, soundtrack, the movement. I was uh, very much around uh, National AIM and some of the personalities there during that time, and I considered myself a member of AIM up until 1974 or so, 1973, for reasons that, that I thought were uh, valid. So since then, I've, been, I've considered myself to be an independent, which basically meant to me that I was not affiliated not actively affiliated with any organized group. That summer, that summer of 74, I was very active with the, um, the marches that we had on Farmington. The response that we made to the, the murders of Navajo people by some of the uh, white teenagers there. That's when the uh, organization was developed, Coalition for Navajo Liberation, which was basically just a collection of different activist groups that, that came to Farmington to, to join the, the protest marches and the boycott. And AIM was, was a member of the coalition. But as time went along, the Coalition for Navajo, Navajo Liberation, CNL, grew to be an organization on its own. I was um, loosely in and out of uh, CNL's activities uh, through 1974 and into 1975. And I was aware of the um, concerns that, that people had with the, the Fairchild Semiconductor Plant here in Shiprock. Navajo Nation uh, got a, a major EDA loan, I think that's uh, Economic Development Administration loan to, to build the, uh, the industrial plant there for Fairchild. 
at the high point, I believe there was over a thousand uh, employees, and my mother was one of those employees. It was paycheck work, you know. It was low, low-paying jobs, but it was a, it was a paycheck. I understand that Fairchild Semiconductor Company decided to come to Shiprock because our people could do intricate and monotonous work assembling the, the microchips and uh, other things that they were manufacturing. But Fairchild is also well known for starting other things, like good relationships with employees. Let today be the start of a solid relationship and a rewarding career. The concerns really started to get loud in 1974, when some of the people that, that were working there at, at Fairchild began to voice their concerns about the low pay, the working hours, the, the treatment of Navajo people, the, the obvious uh, fact that all of mid-management, top management uh, were, were, were Anglos with the big question being why weren't Navajos being allowed to uh, go into the management ranks. So all of these concerns began to be very upfront. And I know that the travel administration, Mr. Peter McDonald at the time, with Office of Navajo Labor Relations, they did make some effort to improve those payroll concerns and uh, working conditions. But some of the more vocal uh, workers there wanted to take more aggressive actions to basically force the company to making some concessions on their concerns. Were there, were there talks of unions, like to unionize at the... Uh... There was a discussion about unionizing the employees. I think that was one of the issues that the company were very adamantly opposed. So the, the vocal workers, they, they thought they needed to uh, really make some aggressive, take some aggressive actions on, on the company. So they got into communication with Coalition of Navajo Liberation to see if the, the CNL would be willing to come in and support the workers. And then uh, CNL invited the American Indian Movement into the picture. So I knew those talks were happening. I was concerned with the direction that the, that discussion was going because my personal reasons were, were obviously that my, my mother was an employee there and I didn't feel like um, the proposed actions would be beneficial to the workers. I decided that I would not be a part of it. So one morning, uh, turning on the national news, I was not surprised to hear that there had been a, an armed takeover of the Fairchild plant just uh, across the river there. By that time, it was general news, and that morning, mid-morning, uh, we went over there to where all of this was happening, and there were a lot of people, a lot of people uh, on the west side of the highway across the street from the Fairchild plant, and uh, people had little fires going and just a lot of people talking and 
on, on top of the building, you, you did see people standing up there and understood that some of the AIM and CNL members were inside with weapons. While, while we were there just talking and visiting with some of the folks, one of the principal uh, CNL people did come over. She told me that the leaders inside wanted to have me come inside with with some more people and uh, maybe some weapons. And I, I just told her that I, that I wasn't going to do that. And I, didn't, I didn't feel that um, this, this thing was, um, was right, so that I wasn't going to participate. But some of my friends who I associated with at the time, they, they asked if, if they could go inside. And, you know, it just, that, that was their choice. You know, I told them, that's, that's up to you. you know, I got nothing to say about it. So some of my friends did go inside, but I never went across the street. I, I never went into the building. Although for many years, that was the myth that Chileazi <laughs> uh, was uh, part of takeover. But that, that, was, that was not the case. So as the time went into the, the talks between the company, the Navajo Nation, and the representative of the workers, and then, of course, um, the groups that were inside, I followed around Mr. Fred Johnson at the time, who was our Navajo Tribal Council delegate. He was very close to the, the groups that were inside. Of course, him, him having been one of the, um, perhaps the main principal in organizing the marches the previous year, he just happened now to be our elected uh, council delegate. And he ended up representing the uh, community and the, uh, basically the workers and the groups that were inside the building. I participated in at least two meetings between these groups and they didn't get anywhere. The company was not willing to discuss coming to terms on any of the issues that the people had. And, and to me, what I saw was that the Navajo government, Mr. McDonald, was not enthusiastic about resolving the, the situation, was not very supportive of, of the demands that were being made by the workers and, and these groups. The reasons why became known so many days later. After the takeover reached its high point, Fairchild announced that uh, they would just be closing up their operations here. So they, they packed up their bags and left town. The groups inside had no more reason to, to be there, so they started leaving. What was the re reaction to the takeover in the community? Was it a, I imagine it's like a mixture between support and maybe criticism of the actions of the activists? I think much of the reaction was that, can something like this be happening here in Shuprock? You know, we hear about these things happening out there in the world and other places, but is this actually happening here? So there was some, it was difficult for people to comprehend that this was actually happening. I think that right during those first few days of the takeover, people were beginning to just comprehend the, the situation. I, I would think that the community support for the workers was there, certainly. But then at the same time, there was very great concern 
by the workers and um, the majority of the workers that, that, that were basically content with the paycheck and their families. They, of course, were very concerned with what was happening. So I would say that the majority of the people were not supportive of the takeover while it was happening. When Fairchild walked away, you know, the majority of the people, the, the, great, the greater majority of the people began to be critical that this, this had happened. It was devastating to the families that Fairchild had left. There was no more paycheck. It was very hard on families. I know that uh, in our own home, my mom was crushed. She, she cried for days that uh, there, was no more, there was no more work. And I can just imagine uh, that same feeling of uh, despair and, and sadness in many other homes throughout the community. I know that while these talks were happening at the BIA headquarter building here in Shiprock, um, I was very much just on the periphery, just uh, accompanying uh, Mr. Johnson and sensing from him, uh, hearing him. He was very frustrated. He was, he was angry at Fairchild. He was angry at the tribal administration because they weren't willing to come to some terms that would be positive for the community and for the workers. It wasn't a very good situation. As I understand it from some articles, it's believed that Fairchild was already thinking about moving out. They were seeking cheaper labor in other countries as a way to like increase their profits and not pay workers, which is, as I understand it, why they wouldn't allow Native workers to unionize or to meet some of the demands. When did that come to light? Did some folks in the community recognize that? Or was it until later that folks started to learn that? Yeah, it was, it was only later, maybe weeks later, when we began to understand that Fairchild had already planned on leaving later that year, 1975. The takeover was uh, just justification for them to, to leave earlier than they had planned. I understand that they went to the Philippines or somewhere out that way, continued their operations with even lower pay and, and uh, less scrutiny on, on their treatment of workers and, and so on. In your opinion, what are some like lasting impacts that occurred because of the incident? The impact was uh, very significant. It made for a black eye on, on Shiprock and the Navajo Nation. Through the years in my, in my capacities of, of leadership with the community and the Navajo Nation, there were several opportunities where companies were interested in coming to Shiprock to, the, uh, to occupy the facility. And uh, as talk, as we went into talks with some of those companies, this, this issue always came up. I've seen it um, where companies would say that what guarantees can you make that this won't happen again? Of course, we can't make such guarantees. So companies walked away from the table. Shiprock missed out on, on several opportunities for employment. Yes, uh, that's, that's one of my conclusions is that, that the takeover was negatively impacted the community for many years. I even today 
attribute the condition, the lack of economic uh, activity here back to then. This is many, many years later, but apparently impact of, of situations like that are, are long term. Were there any political impacts from the incidents that you see may influence grassroots folks? In the final analysis, the two situations are very different. The, with the marches, there was tremendous support from the grassroots uh, community. I can see that it was an opportunity to stand up to the oppressor, whether or not that was, that was the description that we would give, that we would make at the time. You know, border towns, uh, Farmington, have, have long discriminated against our people in different ways, economically, and where there are violations of our civil and human rights. That's mistreatment that we've taken for many decades. And the marches on Farmington was, uh, was a very great opportunity for us to stand up and say, we object to this mistreatment. We will not continue to tolerate it. I think very the dynamics of marches and the boycott that we made on Farmington at the time made that statement that, that we will not, that we know that we're being discriminated against, that we're being exploited, that we will not stand for that anymore. The dynamics of that, of that situation is what drew a lot of grassroots support. That's very uh, clear at this point. With the uh, armed takeover, it was different because it, it impacted the economic stability of families. It hurt families financially. I think that even during the takeover, I didn't see, I didn't sense that there was a, a significant support from the grassroots community because it was, just didn't feel right. I, I would think that because of that, the majority of our community, of the people in, in, the, in this region, were not very receptive of that kind of activism. It sounds like in the first case with the marches in Farmington, you, to use like organizing or, or like to use a lingo from there, is you were with the people, you were with the masses. Yeah. In the second case, the Fairchild, it seemed more like it was kind of a smaller group, maybe had some supporters, but overall a majority of folks just weren't, didn't necessarily agree with the tactics being taken. Yeah. And to me, that sounds like a, a very important lesson for organizers in general when organizing and, and trying to make demands and set the agenda is to make sure that you're at least doing it with the people who support you. You might get better results, but also leave a more positive impact, I suppose. Are there... Any other lessons that you think might be learned from this incident in 1975? Whoever would, would uh, venture to consider uh, taking these kinds of um, actions really need to um, look at the, the potential impact on the community and on the people. I, I think that, that a great lesson was learned. Our, our, our people, because we're thrust into this modern way where you need money to survive. That opportunity for people to, to generate that income cannot be played with, it cannot be jeopardized.
So I think people today still are, are very uh, cautious. You know, we did another march here in 19 or 202006 when uh, Clint John was, was murdered by Farmington police. And again, that was different. It was a, a mass response to the apparent continued mistreatment of our people. So it had different dynamics. That was a really good thing that we were able to do at that time. It's necessary for, for us to defend our, our rights, our space, our land, our water, the potential consequence and the potential benefit of those uh, actions uh, really need to be thought through before we engage. I'm glad that we are able, we have the capacity to make that stand, to say what we need to say when we have to. Life is free and natural as we move swiftly among the trees. This was a country, it was here that we lived for centuries.